All right, morning, everyone. Good to see all of you. I leaned over to my wife when Pastor Nathan was up here. That's my second time listening to his communion devotional. I said, I don't think he can help but preach. It's just in him to, to preach. I appreciate him so much. Father, we thank you for the privilege of worshiping you and being reconciled to you through your son, Jesus Christ, and being able to worship you and draw close to you, which is really what I pray we would see this uh, time to be, one that we can press into your throne. And I pray this uh, people here and anyone who's tuning in remotely would find themselves hearing from you through these verses. Thank you for the wonderful application that you've recorded here in the Corinthian church for us to apply uh, to our body, to our lives, that we can have unity and fellowship with others, whatever truths you have contained here. I pray that you would deliver them. If there's anything in my notes that I shouldn't say, then restrain me. And if there's anything in them that um, shouldn't be shared, then I pray that I would just overlook that, Lord, and let this be the message that you have for your people. And thank you for the work your word does. And we pray you can be pleased with this time. Help us to remove any distractions uh, from, our, from our minds and just commit this time to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the title of this morning's sermon is Using Knowledge Immorally. Using Knowledge Immorally. We're in 1 Corinthians 8, if you want to turn back there. Does anyone remember the title of last Sunday's sermon? By chance, if not, don't worry about it. Sometimes I don't remember what I preached a few days ago. Does anyone remember? Using Knowledge Morally last Sunday, and this morning using Knowledge Immorally. So we talked last Sunday that knowledge is amoral, but we use it morally and immorally. And last Sunday we talked about using it morally and this morning we'll talk about using it immorally. I said I wanted to begin a series on wisdom, and I recognized pretty early on in my studying that we were going to have to understand the differences or distinctions between knowledge and wisdom, and I suppose this is just my opinion, but I don't think that there's a better chapter in the New Testament for understanding knowledge biblically than 1 Corinthians 8. So we began looking at it, and I was pleased with the application that I thought I had for our church because of the Strong opinions there are about different circumstances that are taking place. I want to briefly review. Lesson one, I left it on there from last week. The knowledge is amoral, but the way we use it is moral. And the Corinthians were facing a, a situation in their church, a question really, and what was that question or what was the situation? Yeah, should we eat meat sacrificed to idols? And this led to two groups in the church. The first group was in verses four through six. If you look there with me, this is the group that thought they should eat. First Corinthians 8, 4, Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that, and, and just notice the use of the word we there, Paul was in this group. He knew better than anyone that an idol was nothing. It has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Verse 5, although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, such as the ones they worship, Zeus or Hermes or, or Mars, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And so this first group would say, idols are not real, therefore the things that are offered to them are uh, not really being offered to anything. We can consume that meat that is offered to them. In fact, we can even be better stewards of our finances if we consume this meat because it's being offered at a, a discount. Now the second group is in verse 7. Paul says, however, not all possess this knowledge, the knowledge that Paul just discussed in verses 4 through 6, that idols are nothing and that the meat sacrificed to them can be consumed. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak 
is defiled. And so the second group would say, I want nothing to do with this meat because I want nothing to do with idolatry. It's a horrific sin. Many of in this group were Gentiles who had previously been worshiping at some of these very temples only months or perhaps weeks earlier. They recognize that God has delivered them from this idolatry. They want absolutely nothing to do with it, including the sacrifices that were given to these idols. And so they say, you know, this meat could be given to us for free and we wouldn't touch it. And they also thought nobody else should touch it either. Paul made the point that it did not matter which group people were in. Look at verse 8. He says, food is not going, and he means any food, even the meat that sacrificed idols is not going to commend us to God. We're no better off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. And this gave us lesson two last week. Having knowledge doesn't always mean determining who's right and wrong. Paul did not side with anyone. He didn't commend anyone or rebuke anyone else. And so here's the question then. If it's not about who's right and wrong, then what is it about? And he gives the answer if you look back at verse one. He kind of begins with the answer, which is why we've looked at these verses out of order. I wanted to give you the background, which is in verses four through eight. But Paul gives the answer in verse one. He says, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so that's what it's about. When Paul says love builds up, if it's not about who's right and wrong, it is about love, or it is about loving, or it is about unity, or it is about edification and building each other up. And this verse wonderfully reveals the two ways that knowledge can be used. It reveals how knowledge can be used immorally, which we looked at last week. Knowledge is used immorally if, or we looked at it how it's used morally last week, excuse me, um, if it's used lovingly to build up. But we also see in this verse how knowledge is used immorally in the words puffed up. And so last week, knowledge is used morally when combined with love, and now with the words puffs up. This brings us to lesson four. Knowledge is used immorally when combined with pride. Knowledge is used immorally when it's combined with pride versus being combined with love. Hopefully you notice the parallelism in that verse. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And so it seems to me that knowledge is going to be building up one way or the other. Do you see that? Knowledge is going to be building up. We can either be using that knowledge to build up others, or we can be using the knowledge we have to build up who or whom? Ourselves. That's what Paul's saying. So unfortunately, some of the Corinthians were using their knowledge pridefully to build up themselves. The verse is a little misleading. It almost looks like it says, well, I mean, it does say knowledge puffs up. And so because of that, it almost looks like the verse is saying we should avoid love or or avoid knowledge, not pursue it because it's immoral and it's going to lead to pride in your life. But we have to consider this verse in the context of Scripture, and we know that there are plenty of other verses in Scripture that speak positively of pursuing knowledge, that it's not something to be avoided. Proverbs 15, 14, the heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. Proverbs 18, 15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So if it's not saying that knowledge should be avoided, which it clearly doesn't because so many other places in Scripture present it as something to be pursued, then the question is, what is the verse saying? It's basically... Uh, important for us to recognize the verse is communicating 
the, the, the warning that knowledge can puff us up or make us proud. And I think it's pretty easy to imagine how this can happen. You have developed some amount of knowledge or familiarity with something, and then you're able to think that you're better than people that don't have this knowledge. You're, you're more informed, or you're more educated, and you're more knowledgeable, and so inevitably it leads to, to pride. The ESV translates this very well. It adds the word this before knowledge. It says, it, in other words, it says this knowledge produces pride or puffs up versus just saying knowledge puffs up. And so the question then is what knowledge? Well, really, the knowledge that the Corinthians had the knowledge that would say, we're right and you're wrong. That, when Paul says, this knowledge puffs up, it's the knowledge that says, we have it all figured out and you don't. Or because we have this knowledge and you don't, we're better than you. And you say, well, how do you know that the Corinthians were thinking that or saying that? We know that because in many translations, the words, all of us possess knowledge are in quotation marks. Just by a show of hands, Raise your hand if your Bible has quotation marks around all of us possess knowledge. Only James, Mitch, not very many. Okay, very good. What do you have, Jennifer? ESV, yeah. So the reason it's in quotation marks is because Paul is quoting them. He's quoting people in the Corinthian church who were saying, all of us possess knowledge. So can you hear the pride behind that? That's what the Corinthians were saying. And Paul's saying, this knowledge that you have, the way that you're using it, is puffing you up. You can hear the pride. And so if we're going to learn from the Corinthians, we should ask ourselves, is knowledge a source of of pride for us? Does knowledge cause us to act arrogantly or to think that we're better than others? And inevitably, if knowledge puffs us up or causes us to exalt ourselves, then we're going to see ourselves here, and where are others going to be? Down here, right? And I'm getting to a point with this. If we're here, and we think others are here, we're going to look down on them. We're going to condemn them. We're going to think we're, we're better than them. And the reason that I draw attention to that is because that's the point that Paul um, makes that knowledge can do this. And this brings us to the next part of lesson four. Knowledge is used immorally when part two condemning others over non-essentials. Knowledge is used immorally when part two, condemning others over non-essentials. When knowledge has puffed us up, inevitably we're going to condemn others, we're going to look down on them. This is an interesting lesson to me. I kind of changed it later in the week. Initially, I had knowledge is used immorally when condemning others, and I didn't have the words over-essentials or over-non-essentials at the very end of that, but I needed to add that. Why is that? Because there's sometimes we should condemn, correct? There's times we should confront sin. There's times that we have knowledge, and it could be knowledge of something immoral in someone's life, and the loving thing to do is to go to them, or the loving thing to do is to confront them. And so I had to add over non-essentials because there are definitely, I mean, the world wants to scream that you never judge anyone and that judging is, is sinful. But the Bible presents plenty of things that are moral and immoral and that can require confrontation at different times. And so when exactly should we not use our knowledge to condemn others when it's over something non-essential or when it's over something amoral? Last week, I invited you to see a relationship between two chapters, 1 Corinthians 8 and what, you know, kind of almost rolls off your tongue. These two chapters go together. 1 Corinthians 8 and what? Romans 
14, right? We think of them as companions to each other. In 1 Corinthians 8, they're arguing about food sacrificed to idols. In Romans 14, they're, off, they're also arguing about food, and they're arguing about days of the week. I want to show you something from Romans 14, if you'll turn there with me, how they were using their knowledge immorally to condemn each other over non-essentials. So one book to the left. I guess it'd be about 10 chapters to the left, to Romans 14. Paul says in verse 1, as for, the, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Even though it says weak in faith, you should understand this means weak in knowledge. This isn't a spiritual issue. It's not... It's not discussing individuals who are more mature or less mature than others, but it is discussing people who have knowledge that others don't have. And so when it says weak in faith, understand this as being weak in knowledge or lacking knowledge that others have. And what does Paul say to do with people who might not have the same knowledge as you? It's not a trick question. What does it say in the verse? He says to welcome them or to receive them, basically not to reject them. And he also says what not to do with them besides rejecting them. He says don't quarrel with them. Don't argue with them or dispute with them over opinions. And opinions is such an important word because it reveals what we're not dealing with here. It's an opinion versus being scripture. It's an opinion versus being a hill to die on or a battle that needs to be fought. And so we're dealing here with non-essentials. Essentials are moral issues. The battle does need to be fought. You know, that is a hill that you're going to take a stand on. So the question, what makes something an opinion or what makes something a non-essential versus an essential or versus a hill to die on? And this is it, to say it very simply. An opinion just doesn't have the weight of Scripture behind it. An opinion doesn't have the weight of Scripture behind it. And so you could have a very strong conviction, which the Bible permits, allows us to have very strong convictions. And if you're considering whether it's an opinion, you ask yourself one question— can I find biblical precedent for this? Do verses support what I'm feeling very strongly? And if verses don't support it, you can still keep that conviction, but you have to recognize that it's a non-essential or an opinion versus being scriptural, versus being an essential or hill to die on. And here's the issue. If you think, if you kind of play this out, if you go to someone with your opinion, but you treat it like it's an essential or a hill to die on, and the first time that that person says, okay, I've heard what you have to say. Can you share a verse with me that supports what you're saying? What's going to happen? You just kind of went out on a limb, and there's no limb there, is there? And so all we need to do is ask ourselves, are there verses supporting this strong conviction or belief that I have? And if there are verses for that, then that's an essential. And if there's not, then it's simply our opinion. Briefly look at verse 22. Paul says the faith, and again, we should think of this as knowledge. He says the faith or the knowledge that you have, this is interesting, keep between yourself and God. Paul is urging them to do what with their opinions? He says keep it, keep it to yourself, basically. Keep it between yourself and God. Don't, don't go around lecturing everyone or preaching to everyone about your opinions. Look at verse 2. He says, one person believes that he may eat anything, 
while the weak person believes, or the weak person eats only vegetables. By the way, if I ever feel convinced that I should eat only vegetables, please confront me about that, okay? <laughs> I saying, what an existence that would be if you had that conviction. So you have heard from the pulpit, if I ever come and tell you that I think I should eat only vegetables, that is a time, please love me enough to come and confront me. <laughs> so he says, let, let not the one who eats despise. Okay, notice this. this is important. This relates to the lesson here and the potential to look down or condemn others. Listen to the language Paul uses. He says, let not the one who basically has knowledge, who eats, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And then again in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now, this is strong language, isn't it? Paul is talking about people who despise each other. He's not talking about people who disagree with each other. Disagreement is fine. I've been blessed by people who have disagreed with me and come and spoken to me about it. That's how we grow, that's how iron sharpens iron. But what Paul is talking about is an amount of resentment or contempt even that can build up in someone's heart towards someone else because someone else is doing things differently. That's what he says. He says, these people are despising each other. He says, passing judgment, which Paul says twice. That's also strong language. It means to condemn or to look down on. And so we know that, that knowledge is being used immorally when we are despising or condemning people over non-essentials. There are two reasons we're not supposed to despise or pass judgment or uh, have contempt uh, for people who see things differently than us. First, in verse 1, it says to welcome people with different opinions. Just notice that. Verse 1, welcome people with different opinions. And then you can see why at the end of verse 3, because it says God has welcomed them. So you've got to see this connection. So this point makes sense. We should receive people that God has received. We should welcome people that God has welcomed. In other words, if God doesn't have a problem with someone or what someone's doing, then what? We shouldn't either. That's the point that Paul is making here. I mean, unless, unless we see ourselves better than God or having a higher standard than him or being holier or more just than him to condemn someone that he has welcomed or received is to put ourselves even above God himself. And so that's why verse 4 says, who are you to pass judgment? I mean, basically says, who do you think you are? You're not the judge. People don't stand before you regarding non-essentials. They're, they're not your servant. You're not their master. A few verses later, look at verse 10. Paul says, Again, why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? So again, passing judgment, despising, then verse 13, therefore let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Again, don't pass judgment on those with different convictions. And you want to know what's really interesting about this? You got these two groups, and it goes both ways. It's equally tempting for both groups to judge or condemn or despise each other. Look at verse 3 again with me. Paul says, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. And so either group, the person with more liberty or less liberty, can put themselves 
in that place of pride and condemnation. It, it is not only the brother with greater freedom or liberty in Christ. So to say this absolutely clearly, the person with greater freedom or liberty in Christ can condemn or despise or look contemptuously at the person with less freedom or liberty in Christ, but the person with less freedom and liberty in Christ can equally condemn or despise the person with more freedom or liberty in Christ. So just think about how this plays out. The person with more liberty in Christ is going to look at the person with less liberty and think what? He has no idea what Christ has done for him. He doesn't recognize his freedom or his liberty. What a legalistic individual. He is so self-righteous. He probably thinks he's better than me. He's probably judging me while I'm sitting here judging him. (laughs) And then what does the person with less liberty and freedom think about the person with more liberty? What a carnal Christian. What a compromising individual who has no appreciation whatsoever for holiness. I mean, look at the immoral lifestyle that he or she is leading through those behaviors and actions that he chooses, you know, that no good Christian would ever uh, consider. You know, he or she's probably judging me, again, while I'm sitting here judging him. And so if we're going to learn from the Romans, we should ask ourselves, does our knowledge cause us to condemn or look down on others, or even worse, does the knowledge we have cause us to have any sort of contempt in our hearts for people who feel differently or do things differently than us regarding non-essentials? I mean, it's, it is interesting. You can find places in Scripture that say, do not judge, like throughout Romans 14, and then you can find places in Scripture that command judging. And for the critic that, uh, you know, despises God's word, they're going to want to say that there is an inconsistency there or contradiction. And I would not say that at all. It's just an issue of when to judge. There are definitely times to judge. There are times to condemn. There are times to even have contempt for people's actions or behaviors. And then there's other times when we shouldn't condemn. We shouldn't judge. There should be no contempt, even if people are doing things completely different than us. Go ahead and turn back to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. Here's the question. What happens when we combine knowledge with pride versus love? So we have these two choices. We can see in the verse we can combine our knowledge with pride or we can combine our knowledge with love. And what happens when our knowledge is not combined with love, but it is instead combined with pride? You end up with an individual that sounds like a know-it-all. And that's not my opinion. I'm saying that because that's the point Paul makes in verse 2. Look at 1 Corinthians 8, 2 with me. And you know what? Maybe I don't even like the way that I word that. That's what I would say. I, I, I don't want to use language like they, they, them, as though it doesn't apply to us. When we combine knowledge with pride, and when we don't combine knowledge with love, we sound like know-it-alls. So look, look at verse 2 with me. Paul says, If anyone imagines that he knows something, He does not yet know as he ought to know. And I love the way this is worded. Notice Paul says, imagines he knows something, (laughs) versus what? In other words, when he says, imagines he knows something, implies that the person doesn't really know anything, or they think they know everything, or they are a know-it-all, versus someone who actually has knowledge. And when people think they know everything, we kind of talked about this before a few weeks ago, when people think they know everything, it's actually evidence of how little they know. And why is that? 
Because when people develop a considerable amount of knowledge, they, they come to recognize how much more there is to learn or how much more there is to know. And so they recognize they don't know everything. The only people that really think they know everything are people who just don't know enough yet to know how little they know. Does that make sense? Have you ever noticed that? Especially, I mean, it's almost like uh, new Christians or new converts are the only ones who see things so black and white and think that they know everything. Some of the most mature Christians will be some of the fastest people to say, I don't know, and, and allow some amount of liberty or freedom there. And so really, it's a sign of, it's a sign of immaturity. It's an, an evidence uh, of youthfulness, spiritually speaking, to think that we have everything figured out. People who have knowledge will know that they have so much more to learn and that they're only scratching the surface. Don't, know, don't miss the connection here to verse 1. The pride and the lack of love, or let me say it like this. Why do we treat people the way we do? Why does a husband treat his wife the way that he does? Or why does a wife treat her husband the way she does? Why do parents treat their children the way they do? Why do children uh, honor or obey their parents or disobey or dishonor their parents? Why are we considered or loving toward others or unloving toward others? All of those are vertical, but I would say all of those things are done because of the, or all those are horizontal, but all those are done because of the vertical. Does that make sense? In other words, a husband treats his wife the way he does because of his, not because of his relationship with his wife. I, I know we tend to think that, and I think this is a very important thing for everyone to understand, that we treat people the way we do, whether it's our spouse, whether it's our children, whether it's our friends, because of our relationships with Christ. Our actions or our relationships with others are primarily outpourings of our relationships with Christ. We act the way we do, we handle things the way we do because of our relationships with Christ. And so if you understand that, then you understand the point that Paul is making here. He's saying that people's pride or their lack of love in the Corinthian church, or could be in our church as well, is an evidence of a spiritual weakness, or it's a symptom of of a problem in their relationships with Christ. The pride and lack of love is evidence that they didn't know as much as they thought they knew, and if we knew as much as we thought we did, then, or if we were as mature as we thought we were, then our knowledge would be combined with humility. Our knowledge would be combined with love versus pride. Look what Paul says in verse 3 to help the Corinthians, and I would say all of us have the humility that we should. He says, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And I just want, and notice the verse 3 starts with the word but because Paul's making a contrast here. He's contrasting people in verse 2 with people in verse 3. Verse 3 starts with the word but because he's making a contrast. There are those people in verse 2 who imagine they know everything but don't have love and don't know as much as they think they know. And then there's those in verse 3 who love God and are known by him. So in other words, it's one thing to have knowledge or to know something. But it's another thing entirely to know God and be loved by him. Can, can people have considerable knowledge and not know God and not be loved by him? Absolutely. I mean, there are some, you know, frankly, brilliant people. Just minds. I remember when I was, I went to an engineering school. I went primarily to, I went to Florida Institute of Technology for ROTC because I had an ROTC scholarship, and they had a real attractive ROTC program. I wasn't an engineer. I wasn't a, it was a big-time science school. 
I can remember meeting some individuals at Florida Tech that their minds, I just thought they were on another level. I mean, I could barely have a conversation with them. And to be candid, I think sometimes they had trouble having conversations with many people because they really were, it was like another plane how brilliant some of these people were. And many of them could have been, you know, or I suspect many of them were staunch atheists. Some of the, some of the staunchest unbelievers you'd ever meet. So people can have great knowledge and not know God and not be loved by him. And that's the point Paul is making. He said the important thing is not how much knowledge you have. The important thing is that you love God and are known by him, that he has a relationship with you, that you have a relationship with him. Warren Wiersbe said this, a know-it-all attitude is evidence of ignorance. It is possible to grow in knowledge, yet not grow in grace or one's personal relationship with God. That is a, to me, that's a, a staggering warning that we wouldn't want to continue to learn and accumulate knowledge and, uh, without also growing in the grace or the love that, and humility that should also come with that knowledge. And that's what Paul was warning about or saying to the Corinthians, that you have this amount of knowledge, but spiritually speaking, you're not, you're not growing equally in your relationships with the Lord, which is what's contributing to this, this division or this conflict in your church. Now, I want to remind you about something from last week so you can understand what's happening in these verses. We see that there's these two groups. There's one group in verse 1 that has knowledge, and then there's another group that is in verse 7 that did not have the knowledge that the first group had. Now, intuitively, we would expect that Paul would tell the first group to do what with the knowledge that they have? Share it with the group that doesn't know, or tell it to the group that's ignorant, right? I mean, Paul recognizes, he appreciates this group that I'm in has knowledge and this other group doesn't. We would just expect Paul to say, go ahead and straighten them out. Tell them the things that they need to know so they're not walking around in ignorance. Why didn't Paul tell them to do that? To understand that, we have to have an understanding of our consciences. Go ahead and turn to Romans 2. To understand why Paul didn't tell one group to straighten out the other group, we need to understand our consciences. Turn to Romans 2. Here's the context, so this makes sense. Paul's talking to Jews. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Paul wants to explain the gospel very clearly, but before he explains it, he wants people to see their need for it. And the only way you see your need for the gospel or for a savior is if what? you see or recognize your what? Your sinfulness. The only reason you see your need for a Savior is if you know you need to be saved. The only reason you would want the forgiveness that Christ offers is if you know you're a sinner who needs to be forgiven. And so before Paul gives them the gospel, he first reveals their need for the gospel. And so what does he have to do? He has to show them their sinfulness, that he needs to show them that they are going to be judged before perfectly holy and just God. And he's dealing with two groups, really the only two groups there are, Jews and Gentiles. And interestingly, both of these groups thought that they were free from judgment. They thought that they were good in God's sight. And Paul needs to destroy this perception that they have of themselves. The just to give the background so the verses make sense, the Jews thought they were good because they had been given what, and they thought just having it made them good. The law. The Gentiles thought that they were good or innocent or free from judgment because they didn't have the law. 
which kind of makes sense if you think about it, because the idea is if you haven't been told right from wrong, you can't be held responsible for choosing wrong instead of right. So they think if there hasn't been a law telling them not to do something, they can't be held responsible when they do something that they haven't been told not to do. Okay, that's the background. Look in verse 12. Paul says, all who have sinned without the law, and who's that? All who have sinned without the law. Who are those without the law? Gentiles. They're going to perish without the law. And he'll explain why in verses 14 and 15. Continuing in verse 12, he says, all who have sinned under the law or with the law, and who would that be? That'd be the Jews, and they're going to be judged by the law that they have been given. Verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. My suspicion is this makes sense to us, but it didn't seem to make that much sense to the Jews. The Jews thought they were good because they had been given the law, failing to recognize that receiving the law just made them more accountable failing to recognize that being given the law was a greater revelation of their, of their sinfulness or made them guiltier before God. And why is that? Because now they've been told right from wrong, their accountability is higher, they're more responsible, their sin can be even more exposed. So interestingly, being given the law did the exact opposite of what they thought that it did for them. That's the point Paul's making. Now, the Gentiles, and this is the important part, have not received the law, think they're not going to be held accountable, because they don't know right from wrong. But look at verse 14 to see what condemns them. Paul says, When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, and this means they obey parts of the law even though they've never heard what before. The Ten Commandments, they've never you know, cracked a Bible. And you know this, if you, I got saved later in life. I did not have to become a Christian to know certain things were wrong. I mean, you can go to the remotest parts of the world. You know, we think of the Aborigines or we think of those, those people out in tribes and, and we imagine they've never heard the Bible uh, taught before, read one, and you say, well, how can they be guilty before God? They can still be guilty before God because if you go and talk to them, they still know that it's wrong to lie, to cheat, to steal. My suspicion is they probably know adultery is wrong when you're in a relationship with one person. You don't have a relationship with someone else. So how do they know these things? without having been given the law. That's the point Paul's making here. He says, they are a law, in the rest of verse 14, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. In other words, what what is acting as a law for them? Their conscience does. Their conscience acts as a law for them and tells them that it is wrong to do this, it is wrong to do that. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness or speaks to them or reveals to them conflicting thoughts, accusing or even excusing them. And that's just a, a beautiful, concise way of describing what our conscience does. Your conscience accuses you or excuses you, which just means you're entertaining doing something. And what does your conscience say? you have permission to do that. It excuses you. That is a fine or moral or reasonable thing to do, or your conscience accuses you and says not to do it. And here's Paul's point. Even though everyone has consciences telling them right from wrong or telling them not to do these things, so their conscience is acting as a law to them, they still do what? Or we still do what? Wrong things. Even though the conscience says that is wrong, they still choose wrong, which allows them before God to be as guilty 
as Jews who have been given the law because their conscience acts as a law to them. I mean, that's exactly what he says there, that their conscience acts as a law even though they don't have the law itself. Now, I want to reveal the important connection, so why do we talk about that? This is really important to understand the remaining verses in 1 Corinthians 8. So let me just ask a couple, two simple questions. Is it bad, based on what we just read in Romans 2, for people to violate or disobey their conscience? Is it? It is. I didn't really hear from anyone, but I'm assuming we... <laughs> it is wrong to violate or disobey our conscience, and we see that from Romans 2. Now, the next question. If it's wrong to violate or disobey our conscience, how bad is it for the person that leads someone else to violate or disobey their conscience? Or how bad would it be for the believer to lead another believer to violate or disobey their conscience? That would be a terrible thing. You would be leading another believer to sin. With that in mind, turn back to 1 Corinthians 8. This brings us to the last part of lesson four. Knowledge is used immorally when part three, stumbling others. Knowledge is used immorally when part three, stumbling others. I, I can't say the very worst way to use our knowledge. I mean, perhaps it's when our knowledge puffs us up or makes us unloving. But I would say if I had to choose this is the very worst way to use knowledge. This is the most immoral way to use knowledge, to use your knowledge to lead someone else to violate their conscience because that is leading someone to sin. Look in verse 9, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul says, take care that this right of yours, so Paul acknowledges that it's someone's right, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged and if his conscience is weak, be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so you can imagine how this happens. You've got an individual, a believer, let's say a Gentile, a new convert, who's convinced that he should have nothing to do with meat sacrificed to idols. He's been a Christian a short period of time, maybe weeks, maybe months. There are other Christians that he knows maybe respects greatly, believes are knowledgeable, have walked with the Lord for some period of time. And this young Gentile Christian happens to look over in the temple, maybe it's a temple of an idol that he used to frequent, and he sees a believer there eating some of the food that he's been convinced he shouldn't eat, some of the meat sacrificed to idols. And so his conscience has told him not to do it, but then he says, what? Well, I see this other believer doing it, so it must be okay for me to do it. And then he goes and eats, and then for, that, for him, that is sin because he has disobeyed or violated his conscience. So this is a warning to us against using our knowledge to lead others to sin. Now, it can be a little confusing sometimes. There seems like there's so many different words for sin in the Bible. You can almost say, why don't we just say sin? I mean, why is there transgress, trespass, abomination, iniquity, perversion, they're meaningful words because they all describe different ways of sinning. And another way of sinning is stumbling. Stumbling is when a believer 
leads another believer to sin by violating or disobeying their conscience. And here's kind of what, how I would invite you to picture this. The Bible will use uh, verses to cause us to picture believers walking together. I mean, how nice and sweet it is to have fellowship where two believers are going the same direction. So kind of have that image in your mind of believers walking together, but then imagine one of the believers trips the other one, but not physically, spiritually. That's stumbling, and that's what Paul's warning against believers doing to each other in the Corinthian church. And this resolves one of the questions that came up last week. You know, I really wish I could get everything in one sermon. It frustrates me that I, I'm going through things, and even, even this week, believe it or not, there's things I have to talk about in the next sermon that I couldn't do in this sermon. I wish I could put it all in one sermon. It'd be like a three or four hour sermon is what it feels like. And maybe that wouldn't even be long enough, and then I'd introduce other things and feel like it'd have to be eight hours long. So here's, at least we're able to resolve one of the questions that came up last week, which is, why didn't Paul tell the group with more knowledge to share that knowledge with the group with less knowledge? Because Paul knew that he could be encouraging one group to lead the other group to violate or disobey their conscience, and that would be a terrible thing. And so he told them, keep your knowledge to yourself. Don't force it or push it on anyone else. And this is really important for us to understand because we tend to think that if we can get people to do things that their conscience forbids them from doing, that we've done a good thing, that it's almost a victory because we've helped them recognize their freedom and liberty in Christ. And Paul says it's not a victory, it's a failure. You've done the, you've done the opposite of doing of something good, you've done something bad. When we get people to do things that their conscience forbids, those aren't things that they should be doing. Those are things that they, that they shouldn't be doing. Now, I want to conclude with this. The theme of the sermon is using our knowledge immorally. And whenever we use our knowledge immorally, it, it seems to stem from pride, which is why I think Paul began this chapter with a discussion of pride. And Paul wants to prevent the Corinthians from being prideful. And so early on in the chapter, he gave them a really great reason to not be prideful, and I think it's a really great reason for us not to be prideful too. Go ahead and I hope it can humble all of us. Look back at verse 3. Paul says, if anyone loves God, it's because he is known by God. If anyone loves God or has a relationship with God, it's because God has a relationship with him or God knew him first. So in other words, it's communicating one of the truths that removes really all pride associated with our relationships with Christ, that it's not something we did or that we initiated, that God was the initiator, that God was the one who, who sought us out. I mean, kind of think of the parable of the, of the lost coin. You know, does the lost coin just kind of get up on its side and roll back to its master? You know, does the lost sheep just find his way back to the shepherd? Someone could say, well, what about, I mean, that's Luke 15 with the parable of the prodigal son, and the prodigal son did find his way home. Why did the prodigal son find his way home? Because he was a son, right? I mean, that's the point. The believers do not commit apostasy. Christians don't lose their salvation. Those ones that backslide like the prodigal son did do return. I, I hope that might be a great encouragement for parents who have uh, children that are Christians, that they, they will return if they, are, if they are born again, if they have been saved. But the main point that I want us to consider, because I think this is what Paul was communicating to the Corinthians to help them be humble, is you did not choose God 
John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you. It's not that we loved God, it's that he loved us. 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Or basically, we have a relationship with God because he first chose to have a relationship with us. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we keep this in mind, it prevents pride and it produces humility, and here's why. Regardless of how much knowledge you have, when you recognize that God was the initiator, that he sought you out, that he pursued you, then this communicates that you're no better than anyone else, regardless of how much knowledge you have or don't have. That basically, you're just another wretched sinner that God set his love or affection on, that he chose for salvation. And to me, I mean, what, what is more humbling than that? That takes the most knowledgeable, brilliant mind and just puts them right on par with what? The lowest, most wretched sinner and just helps all of us, regardless of how much we know, be humbled by the grace and love of our Lord. And if we can keep that in mind, I think it'll, allow, it'll purge our lives of pride and it'll allow us to operate with the kind of humility and love that Paul wanted to see for the Corinthians. Father, we thank you for that truth that reality that you saved us, that you sought us out, that you found us lost and in our sins. And so any amount of knowledge that we might ever accumulate in our lives, I pray we can keep this truth in mind so that we can be humble, so that we can be loving, that our lives would be free um, from pride. And I just thank you for the uh, teaching we received this morning. Let us not just be hearers, but also doers of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.